Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, COVID cases are on the rise again across the country. The leftist teachers union leader will be the next president of Peru. And activists blockade ICE offices in Newark, New Jersey. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In COVID news, new cases of the novel coronavirus are growing rapidly across the country as the highly contagious as the highly contagious Delta variant spreads throughout the unvaccinated part of the population. Southern Missouri is the current hotbed, and while New York State is averaging only one-seventh as many new cases among its population as Missouri, it is now in the top 10 among states for how fast its COVID-19 caseload is growing. This is Rochelle Walensky, director of the Center for Disease Control, speaking out about the latest outbreaks. There is a clear message that is coming through. This is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We are seeing outbreaks of cases in parts of the country that have low vaccination coverage because unvaccinated people are at risk. And communities that are fully vaccinated are generally faring well. In Peru, leftist teachers union leader Pedro Castillo has been officially declared the winner of Peru's presidential election. The announcement follows weeks of baseless claims of fraud by his conservative opponent, Keiko Fujimori, daughter of a former dictator. This is Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, Women for Peace. She led a delegation of international election observers to Peru in June. This is a tremendous victory for progressives, for farmers, for uh, poor people, for indigenous people uh, in Peru because they've never had a president who really comes from such a humble background, a high school teacher, uh, somebody who uh, was brought up with parents who uh, are illiterate. So he understands the need for major change in Peru and the Peruvian people. In Haiti, Abriel Henry is the new prime minister. He will lead a coalition government that includes outgoing prime minister Claude Joseph as foreign minister. Henry was named prime minister by former president Jovenel Moise days before Moise was assassinated earlier this month in his home by a team of U.S. and Colombian commandos. Henry gained his new post with strong behind-the-scenes backing from the U.S. and several European powers. The U.S.'s role in elevating Henry has drawn criticism from some Haitian groups. State Department spokesperson Ned Price insists the U.S. is only trying to help stabilize the country so new elections can be held. We have always said and we continue to believe that the decision of who uh, should lead Haiti belongs to the Haitian people. Uh, Political gridlock, it has taken a tremendous toll on uh, the nation of Haiti, uh, and it's vital for the country's leaders to finally come together to chart a united inclusive path forward. We are encouraged to see Haitian political and civil actors working to form a unity government uh, that can stabilize the country and build the foundation for uh, free and fair elections. The Biden administration is looking at allowing Cubans in the U.S. to resume sending remittances to family members on the island, CNN reports. The socialist nation's economy has been devastated by the pandemic and by U.S. sanctions that were intensified under former President Donald Trump. We'll talk more about the U.S.-Cuban standoff with our second guest later in the show. Next Tuesday, former Air Force intelligence analyst Daniel Hale is scheduled to be sentenced in federal court, possibly up to 10 years in prison, after pleading guilty to one count of violating the 1917 Espionage Act. He is accused of providing 
government documents to the Intercept website and anonymously writing a chapter for the 2016 book, The Assassination Complex, Inside the Government's Secret Drone Warfare Program. On Saturday, a press conference and rally in support of Hale was held on Manhattan's west side. This is Margaret Kimberly from the Black Alliance for Peace. Daniel Hale is being punished for doing what the Attorney General and others failed to do, defend legal rights and expose government wrongdoing. And now he awaits sentencing in the Eastern District of Virginia, the notorious hanging court for whistleblowers. Black Alliance for Peace has a particular interest in the use of drones in Africa, part of the U.S. Africa Command, known as AFRICOM. Signature campaign, no compromise, no retreat, defeat the war against black African people in the U.S. and abroad, includes among its demands shutting down AFRICOM. And finally, this morning, immigration justice activists blockaded ICE's Homeland Security Investigations Office in Newark, New Jersey. They brought to a halt the office's work, which includes processing all deportations and transfers of people in ICE detention in the state. Protesters chained themselves together at the entrance where ICE's unmarked vans bring detainees in and out to process them for a transfer to another facility or for deportation. This marks an escalation in response to ICE's actions as New Jersey activists have been working for years to rein in ICE abuses. Protesters are demanding an end to ICE transfers of detainees to other states, instead calling for the release of all people in detention, and they took aim at the state's political leaders, including Senators Cory Booker and Robert Menendez, for failing to intervene. This is immigration justice organizer Haiti Torres from Movimiento Cosecha. We are 620 Fanholm Avenue here in Newark, New Jersey, where we are just at a black side where ICE carries on with uh, transfers and deportations, where people are uh, forced to fingerprint and also sign their uh, travel documents to be deported or to be transferred to another facility, right? So right now, we were able to identify this site and also to expose it to the public that this site is in the middle of a black and brown uh, community of working class people, and they've carry on, they're being hidden here, carrying on with all of this brutality, right? So then, from this side, people, they are moved to the airports, right, where they're uh, put on chains from hands to, uh, and as to their feet, right, and then taken away from their families and communities. We'll be back with our first guest after this short break. was Let My People Go by Durando. 
Welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest coverage at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. We have another great show for you this week. And in our first uh, segment, we're going to look at undocumented youths who were brought to this country as minors by their parents and the devastating news they received Friday night. A federal judge in Texas ruled that no more dreamers, as the youth are often known, can enter the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that gives them protections from deportation. There are more than 26,000 DACA recipients in New York State right now, and there are more looking to apply for this program. And this judge's ruling applies nationwide, not just in Texas. And our next guest, Daniela Alulema, came from Ecuador in 2001 when she was 14 years old and has lived in Queens the past 20 years while earning college degrees at CUNY's uh, Baruch College and at the New School. She's 34 now, uh, and and this dreamer is the program director at the Center for Migration Studies of New York. Daniela, thanks for joining us on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for the invitation, John. You bet. Uh, So before we get into this ruling, uh, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about your personal story as a dreamer and as a DACA recipient and how this latest um, federal ruling uh, will affect uh, uh, people in a similar position that you are? Absolutely. Uh, well, my parents and I had to leave um, our country, Ecuador, due to political and economic instability. Uh, my parents were struggling financially um, due to a crisis that forced almost 10% of the entire population to migrate. And um, as you said, um, I, w- I was 14 years old when I arrived in New York City in 2001, and um, I immediately enrolled in high school, and um, eventually I was able to um, make it to Baruch College, where I earned a degree in business administration. But it was truly towards the end of those college years that I understood the implications of what it meant to be undocumented. Um, I was not able to secure uh, an internship or a job offer due to the lack of my uh, of a legal immigration status. Um, but all of that changed. Uh, I joined the Undocumented Youth-led movement um, in 2007, where I was able to find community and we were able to empower each other. And most importantly, we were able to organize. And it was thanks to that effort that DACA was announced in 2012. Um, once I received DACA, I, my life just took a turn of 180 degrees and I was able to improve my working conditions become more financially independent, help my family, and I finally felt like I had a future in this country. Um, However, Friday's federal court ruling is truly a cruel decision that once again puts the lives of thousands of young immigrants um, in limbo. Right. And and people like yourself won't be affected. You're kind of in the door, as it were, but everybody else coming behind you is now barred from pursuing this uh, Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Renewals from immigrants like me who already have DACA will be able to proceed. However, this ruling has blocked uh, the federal government from granting any new first time DACA applications. And this this decision truly impacts 81,000 first time applicants who have been waiting for months in this backlog at USCIS. So there are people who were either too young to apply for DACA or didn't have one of the requirements uh, before Trump rescinded the program in 2017. So we now have this group 
of young people who are either about to graduate high school or are about to start college or start their working lives. And they would they should qualify for for DACA, but now they're stuck in this this legal limbo. Um, so it's really it's truly um, a sad, inhumane and, and terrible decision. Uh, the one that was uh, taken on Friday. And, and from your experience during the years when you were in limbo, what is the uh, emotional and psychological impact of of being in limbo like this that now many people will again experience? And it's going to be tough. Um, I can, I, I was, um, I had a, I was a college graduate without any, uh, a legal permit, uh, a work permit, or I didn't have the ability to work um, in the career of my choice for seven years um, until I was able to get DACA. So it was, um, it, it can be really frustrating and there, there are many times when you feel defeated and like you don't have a lot of control over your, your life and future. So, but um, one message that I would like to send to those who are in that limbo now is that um, there are organizations and there is support and there is a community out there that's willing to help you. And also to employers that, you know, there are ways to hire undocumented immigrants uh, legally. Um, you know, people can be employed through independent contractor uh, agreements. Um, so it, it will be tough, but we, you know, this is just another hurdle that undocumented young immigrants have had to face um, over the years. And we truly hope that this is a, the wake up call that Congress, so that Congress finally enacts a permanent solution for the plight, you know, to the plight of undocumented young immigrants. What would that solution look like and, and, and how would it be achieved? Well, um, I think Congress needs to stop politicizing this issue. Uh, we, we all know that uh, when DACA was first announced in 2012, it was meant to be a temporary stopgap measure uh, that for the time being, it allowed uh, people like me to have a, at least, you know, to a breather um, and have a, a, a per permit to work legally for two years and a reprieve from deportation. But it truly, um, I think we, we have another reason why we need a permanent solution. And the only way to get there is to have an actual law that um, finally puts to bed any sort of legal questions about whether um, immigrants like, like me deserve, you know, to have a work permit and deserve to have a, a, a chance to live in the United States and, and contribute fully and use our full potential. So the solution here looks like um, a, Congress needs to um, take action and uh, look at this not as a political issue, not as not use immigrants as a bargaining chip, but instead see us as members of um, society, you know, we're, we're fully integrated. There are polls that indicate that most Americans do support some sort of path to citizenship to undocumented young immigrants, for undocumented young immigrants. So um, it's time to, for Congress to um, a, provide a, a permanent solution um, and start legalizing people and allowing us to, to have finally stable uh, lives. Right. I mean, this has been going... The dreamers have been on um, in uh, this country, I mean, often for 15 or, or 20 years. And, and 
What happened needs to happen or what could happen in the courts as this case probably makes its way all the way to the Supreme Court? Do you have much hope that uh, a heavily conservative Supreme Court would rule in your favor? Or do you think it's more likely they'll uphold what this uh, judge in Texas did? Well, um, I'm not a legal expert, but um, I know we have extremely smart and committed litigators fighting for undocumented immigrants. Um, but I am worried that we now face a Supreme Court that has a conservative majority, and I'm not sure how they will rule. Um, you know, last year with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we were able to obtain a 5-4 decision that found that the Trump administration's termination of DACA was done, was unlawful. But with the current makeup of this court, I think we all need to be prepared for an unfavorable decision. So I think um, that's another reason for Congress to to take action. Got it. And and before we have to go here in a minute, I was wondering how un, young undocumented people have fared in this uh, past uh, pandemic year, the past 16 months with school closures and the pandemic's impact on their family members' health and finances. Uh, I understand you wrote a report about this recently. Yeah, we um, we conducted a survey among faith-based organizations that serve immigrants and what we found is that uh, virtual classes were very challenging for immigrant students, uh, particularly those who live in multi-generational house- households where there is no private space for proper online learning. And many times immigrant students had to juggle multiple responsibilities like um, school, family, and work. Um, we also found that there is a deep digital divide between immigrants and U.S. born residents, which impact the way that immigrants can access services like um, legal services um, or um, online education. Um, so it has been um, uh, an ad- it has been an additional hurdle that undocumented young immigrants have had to face during the pandemic. Well, we, we know how much uh, you have persevered so far, and I appreciate you coming on WBAI this evening to to give us the latest uh, uh, analysis and insights on this. Uh, Daniel Alilema, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, John. You bet. All right, we'll be back with more after this uh, short break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, U.S. and Cuba and uh, what activists are doing to confront the U.S. embargo of uh, Cuba and, or even just simply go around it.
Hello, John. How are you? Right, that was uh, Por Si Acaso No Regreso by C- Celia Cruz. Welcome back to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York's progressive newspaper and website. In our, in our second segment, we look at the U.S.-Cuba standoff and how people in New York City and elsewhere are stepping up to end the U.S. embargo of Cuba or, where possible, go around the, to deliver crucial supplies to the socialist nation. Joining us this evening to talk about this situation is Gail Walker, director of IFCO Pastors for Peace. And uh, a little later, we're going to, um, in our third segment, we're going to uh, talk to members of a new uh, driver's co-op that has started here in New York City to challenge uh, Uber and Lyft with a worker-owned uh, model. But uh, right now, we're going to talk about the situation in, in Cuba and what people are doing here in the U.S. Uh, Gail Walker, welcome to 99.5 FM. All right, John, I muted myself. Uh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Yes, thank you uh, for, for joining us. And um, uh, before we uh, go further in the interview, uh, there was a solidarity rally uh, for Cuba here in New York City this past Thursday in Union Square. It was covered by the Independence uh, video team. And uh, we're going to listen to some voices uh, from that rally for a minute, and we'll, we'll talk about that and many other things that are going on. Okay. Uh, depriving them of syringes, uh, which is specifically a thing the U.S. went out of its way to do. So we're going to be out here as long as it takes in solidarity with Cuban people, um, which means to us, the Cuban people are defending the revolution. That's the vast majority of the people in Cuba. We are seeing the ravages of U.S. that came together here in Union Square in Manhattan to be in solidarity with Cuba and the Cuban people and to be against intervention from the United States, military intervention that they want to cover up with humanitarian aid. Because that doesn't make any sense that you want to, quote unquote, intervene with humanitarian aid while you're blockading a country. To be here with people from all across New York City actually means that the people of New York City stand with 
also that we stand with the right to actually live free of blockades and to demand that the U.S. actually stop its militaristic intervention in Cuba's internal affairs. That sound was uh, gathered by the Indies' uh, Ken Lopez. Uh, Gail, your your reaction to hearing uh, so many voices uh, coming out last Thursday uh, yeah. right, uh, in the heart of Manhattan here in New York? It was great, John. It was great to be there. It was really, I was there. It was uh, um, a really um, spirited uh, group of folk, very diverse, uh, racially uh, intergenerational um, um, Some people I knew, many people I didn't, which was nice. Um, And I think that the overall sentiment was one of, as you just played, uh, you know, U.S. hands off Cuba. There was a a real um, sense of wanting to support um, not only the the Cuban people, the Cuban government, its uh, efforts to try to push back against the the real devilish ways in which um, I think uh, many in the uh, the mainstream media have tried to paint the situation in Cuba. I've been on phone uh, and through um, um, social media in touch with uh, Cuban friends about what's what's happening on the ground. And it's a very different picture than what's being painted in many of the uh, uh, the media outlets. Uh, so it was really important, I think, to see people out expressing the will of most people the vast majority of people in this country who are opposed to the U.S. government's blockade of Cuba, and uh, they they illustrated that last Thursday. Right now, there were there were protests in in Cuba on uh, July 11th that that drew a lot of attention. Obviously, Cuba is uh, going through a very severe economic crisis right now, sure. and and um, for many of those people, they're in in very uh, desperate straits um, with the economy as well as the pandemic uh, hitting the island. Uh, can you talk about the impact of the U.S. embargo on Cuba, and, and of course the uh, the irony, or, or the, frankly, the hypocrisy of the United States proposing to send humanitarian, uh, do a humanitarian intervention in Cuba when it's engaging in in one of the most anti-humanitarian uh, uh, economic embargoes in in recent uh, world history. No, absolutely. The longest, the longest um, set of sanctions that have ever been imposed on a country. And to be uh, to have the foot of the U.S. government on the neck of the Cuban people in this way. And then at the same time, have uh, the Biden administration come out and say we stand with the Cuban people is uh, is utter hypocrisy, because if and it's been said before, uh, and I'll say it again, that if there was really an interest in um, supporting the people of uh, Cuba, they would lift the blockade. They would re- they would at least ease some of the restrictions that have been put in place. There's uh, at least 243 different measures that were put in place under the Trump administration. Biden hasn't re- um, done anything to um, you know un- undo that. Um, there have been uh, you know um, tremendous- what were some of the the the, the worst of the 243. 243- new think, restrictions that were implemented sure. by Trump. So large and small, but, but um, probably one of the most egregious was, you know, putting um, Cuba on the list of states that sponsor terror. Or, um, and, and this has really been because of um, Cuba's uh, longstanding relationship with, uh, with countries like Venezuela, uh, which has always, you know, been in solidarity with Cuba and Cuba has been in solidarity with Venezuela. And it's the, the, the fact that, that Cuba has, uh, maintained a, um, a policy, a, 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 a different um, uh, political system, different than uh, the United States that has, you know, 
that has pushed the U.S. to continue this 62-year-old um, blockade policy. Um, but there are a number of different ways in which those those measures have really helped to to put a, a further stranglehold on the on the Cuban people. And you mentioned the the um, the pandemic, obviously the case, the economic situation, which has been terrible, I think, around the globe, but um, especially terrible for a country that's also been, um, you know, uh, had had a, a 62-year-old uh, set of sanctions or a, an embargo or a blockade, as Cuba refers to it, because it's not a unilateral um, policy. It's a policy in which other countries are, um, you know, really uh, forced and, and, and threatened in many ways uh, if they don't maintain a similar kind of um, relationship, if they don't suspend trade, uh, suspend relations, uh, then they might lose out from having relations with the United States. So that's why it's referred to as a blockade. But it's, um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a very difficult time for our friends. We know that times are tough, but we also know that the biggest thing that could be done would be um, to, to help them would be the lifting of this, uh, this these sanctions. And, and one area that, that seems uh, especially cruel during the pandemic is while the Cubans have a, a, a highly de- developed uh, biopharmaceutical industry and, and have managed to produce their own uh, highly effective uh, COVID-19 vaccines, they don't have the syringes to be able to uh, fully carry out a vaccination program. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how uh, people are dealing with that in Cuba and why that's an embargo-related issue? Yeah, it's, um, again, you know, the, the hypocrisy, right? You have a country that's fully capable of producing uh, what's needed for its country. But um, because of the, the restrictions that are put on um, the uh, trade of any things that might have had uh, either been uh, patented in, in the United States or purchased with a certain percentage, I believe it's at least 10% of uh, U.S. Uh, made goods, uh, they can't be traded or, um, you know, sold um, directly to, to Cuba. Um, the, re- the, the reality is that Cuba has been able to produce five vaccine candidates, five of them, um, at least two that I'm aware of, and maybe more, are on the highest level uh, uh, in terms of efficacy. Um, they are on the list of, you know, uh, the, the first uh, five um, uh, vaccines that are, are effective, but have a lack of syringes. So there has been a tremendous campaign, not only here in this country, uh, this country, I believe that there were at least 6 million uh, syringes that have been um, uh, sent or will be sent to Cuba in the, uh, in Canada and Europe. Uh, Cuba's friends are coming to the, to the fore, you know, and saying, listen, we will provide, provide the syringes that are needed so that you can at least um, inoculate your population and not just the Cuban people, but Cuba has made a commitment to also share its vaccine, its, which is what it does uh, with others in the in the uh, area, uh, in the region who might not have the, uh, the, uh, the ability to vaccinate their own uh, population. But that's a part of Cuba's medical internationalism, which has been a core part of, you know, what it is that Cuba does, whether it's been sending doctors out to dozens of countries to fight COVID, uh, sending doctors to West Africa to fight Ebola, sending doctors to Haiti after an earthquake, uh, sending doctors to various parts of the world after natural disasters. There's a historic, you know, um, uh, precedent 
that Cuba has put in place in terms of its commitment to doing uh, this medical internationalism work. And this is uh, just a, another um, example of it, uh, at, uh, uh, what they're doing uh, to, in the fight against um, COVID and why it's so unconscionable, as you just said, that uh, <laughs> while they can produce these medicines, certain other supplies they don't have access to, um, syringes being being just one. Right. And of course, the Cubans have trained many thousands of doctors at the Latin American School of uh, Medicine in, in Cuba as well, who've then gone around the world to serve uh, low-income communities, including uh, some communities here in the United States. Yeah. Um, but we'll have to leave here in a, in a moment. But uh, last question before we go, which is, uh, what are, are you and, and other groups that you're active with and in communication with, uh, what are you all doing uh, to try to... Um, confront this blockade uh, and how can people uh, get involved if they want to, if they want to get involved with the uh, Cuba solidarity work here in New York. Thanks, John. Thanks for that, that question. Um, Elon, Latin America school of medicine, the org- my organization has helped to uh, facilitate the opportunity for 200 U S graduates, the very country that's blockading Cuba. Uh, we've received these doctors that are serving in underserved communities. So that's, one one way support that program support these doctors we're we're collecting um supplies and resources so that we can purchase uh, uh medicines to actually um send down um trying to fill a cargo plane um many different groups but that's another way there's a friendshipment caravan we organize an annual caravan uh, to cuba to allow it's an opportunity for people to see cuba for itself but also to counter you know, some of the disinformation. So there's a lot of different ways that people can plug in and um, and uh, different Cuba solidarity efforts taking a, 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 um, a place across the, the country. I would say if people want to learn, they could go to our website, ifco at ifconews.org. Ifco, that's I-F as in freedom, C-O, ifco at ifconews.org. And um, we can learn more. One other email address. Okay, yeah, real quick. U.S.-Cuba normalization. I know it's a mouthful. Oh, U.S.-CubaNormalization.org. Okay. Well, Gail Walker, Director of uh, IFCO Pastors for Peace, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You bet. All right, we'll be back after this short break, and we have a, a really exciting uh, third segment. We're going to meet a couple of drivers from a, a new driver's co-op that's uh, sprung up here in New York and that's challenging the duopoly of Lyft and Uber with a new uh, worker-centered model.
That was the original version of uh, Guantanamera by Quarteto Cane in 1938. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent and host on the Independent News Hour here on WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we go to our third and final segment, uh, I want to encourage, encourage everybody who's listening who can do so to support community radio, support this radio station, WBAI, that produces so much news and public affairs programming and cultural programming that you won't hear anywhere else on the radio dial in the New York area. WBAI, uh, Peace and Justice Radio, uh, Cultural Radio, again, non-corporate radio. It can only happen with the support of listeners like you. And uh, I got a, uh, we all got an email uh, earlier this week from our the station's general manager, Bertold Reimers, uh, telling us that uh, WBAI is a uh, a little bit behind and where it should be in its uh, summer fundraising. So this is really important to uh, keep the station going. And, and the station doesn't do, you know, the big 30 or 40 day uh, fund drives anymore. We, we really try to spread it out and not disrupt uh, the programming that you enjoy listening, but we count on you if you can do so to give to this station and you can do so by calling 212-209-2950 or by uh, going to the website give number two wbai.org. You can make a one time donation there, or you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month and get all sorts of great benefits from that, as well as the uh, knowing that you're helping to keep this station on the air. So uh, we need your support. That's uh, that's the, the story here. And when you uh, support the station, you also make possible segments like this next one where we're going to hear from two drivers. From, from a group, uh, a new enterprise called the Drivers Co-op that recently started in New York that is challenging the, the duopoly of Uber and Lyft, uh, which uh, exploit their workers tremendously and uh, it really sort of the worst sort of uh, rapacious Wall Street uh, capitalism that's been brought to the, uh, the, the taxi industry here in New York. And, and the driver's co-op thinks there's another way that's possible that's better for both workers and consumers. So we, we want to hear more about that. And I want to welcome uh, Ken Lewis and David Alexis uh, to WBAI Radio. It's great to have both of you here with us. Uh, thank, thank you, you very much, John. Thank you, John. You bet. So I'll, I'll start with you, David. Can you just uh, kind of sketch out for us sort of what the – the business model is for uh, the driver's co-op and, and how this all got started. This, the, the business model is very much um, trying to transform the idea that we have to do a very exploitative, um, maximize the uh, profits at the expense of both drivers and drivers by, by minimizing the amount that drivers are going to be able to take home and increasing uh, to the maximum amount, how much, um, passengers could be charged and for us a lot of this started when uh af after one of the the struggles that drivers have won here in new york city the only area the only place in the, in the country that has like a paid floor for drivers to make sure that they that they don't get paid less than to see how we, we this has happened in 2019 where where we saw uh, the success of what was a months-long campaign to put this pay floor into effect. We see 
of the app-based companies responded away with a lockout where they were locking out drivers, effectively firing them to ensure that they would be able to maintain those same profit margins uh, that they were, uh, that they had always enjoyed. And seeing that drivers had gotten together and, and started with this premise that this deal that we're getting is terrible and that we could do better. And then fast forward to where we are right now, July 20th, 2021, we have actually organized over 3,600 drivers. Um, we got, we've been uh, blessed enough that the, that New York has responded and down, we've gotten to the tune of 30,000 plus uh, down, downloads uh, where, we, where we are now able to ensure, ensure that drivers can make 85% of the fare whether whether what they take home is actually tied to what the passengers are paying and ensure that because we're not taking those extremely large margins for the sake of maximum profit, allow for uh, customers to pay uh, a more reasonable, affordable uh, fare that's that's on average cheaper than what you would get on like the other platforms like Uber and Lyft. Yeah, it's amazing how much money there is to go around when the when the when the capitalists and the and the investor class uh, doesn't have to get their their cut. Uh, uh, cause, uh, as I understand at this point with Uber and Lyft, in, in many cases, the, the companies are taking between 40 and 50% of the, uh, of the money that the passengers are paying, which, uh, you know, is really, uh, almost, uh, larceny. Uh, and, um, uh, Ken, can you describe, uh, you know, what the experience has been of, of driving, uh, for the co-op and, and, you know, are you getting enough rides to make this worth your while? Well, the, the situation here is that drivers since 2011, when Uber and Lyft came to town, it's been very difficult for drivers. In many cases, you know, a worker goes to a factory, starts to work. He doesn't like it. Sometimes you have the option of leaving. In the, in the, in the case of drivers, you have to actually buy a tool to actually do this work. And your tool is a is a twenty thousand dollar odd car, at cheapest. Some cars are over sixty thousand dollars, and you buy this, and then, as David said, you are locked out. So that was why in two thousand nineteen, a number of us came together, and we actually founded, and we actually found this drivers corp, and so we started planning, then organizing, getting things in order. And so now we finally launched in May, and so far it's been it's been it's been really good. It's growing month and month, and we're and we're doing better. Right. It, it it just so people understand that. I mean, in terms of like what Uber and Lyft do with with their app, I mean, it, it's not that uh, revolutionary of a technology, or at least it's certainly a technology that others can imitate. So, uh, I mean, this is a really uh, sort of clever twist on on the. You know, idea of uh, you know a free market and, and and competition. These guys thought they were building a, a monopoly essentially, and now you guys are trying to yeah. uh, y- use your own app to to cut in on on, on their racket. Well, it's it's actually it's actually drivers own all the assets. You know, you you own the car, you own them the labor, you do everything, and basically what you have is a middleman taking a big cut off of you. And so if you can do the app, like we are doing and organizing the processes, then you can put it in place. And cooperatives itself, cooperatives have 
really been, as you would know, John, a pretty old and very successful form of business. In fact, um, if you, there are figures that, that show that five years later, um, co-ops, 90% of the co-ops are still operating, while for many normal small businesses, only five or six percent. So there's a huge difference in terms of the cooperative structure. And one of the things I wanted them to mention is that we charge the 15% percent. But more, but more than that is that if there are profits at the end of the year, this goes back to our drivers. And so that is a critical part. It doesn't go to Wall Street and Silicon Valley investors. And this is a really important part I wanted to point out about our model. Right. And, and uh, I agree. I think uh, uh, WBAI is, is a, a, a co-op of sorts. Uh, really supported by its listeners, as I, I was saying earlier. And uh, I also want to just take a chance real quick here to uh, plug WBAI to any drivers co-op members who are who are listening uh, to the show either live on 99.5 FM right now or if they listen later uh, streaming on WBAI.org or if they listen tomorrow morning when the show repeats between 5 and 6 a.m. Um, we really hope you'll continue to listen to WBAI. It's a you know, great radio station to listen to while you're driving around the city during the day and maybe expose your uh, passengers to it as well. Um, but with that uh, plug uh, aside, um, can, can you just kind of describe uh, for our listeners who might be thinking, huh, maybe I want to take this. Uh, do you, are you all able to cover the city well enough that if when somebody, uh, you know, uh, puts in a, a request to, for a ride that, you know, somebody can show up, uh, you know, fairly quickly? Uh, 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 David, do you want to take that one? I can do that. So w- we actually do have coverage across the city. Since we had just launched, uh, coverage is uh, we're looking to improve those fulfillment rates. Or, or I will, will be very honest that um, we're still a work in progress. But one of the things that we've been able to do to help ensure better fulfillment rates for those who might be or who are concerned, you have to go to the airport, you got to go to work. You know, this is something that you're going to do at the exact same time. You can actually go to our website, uh, reserve.drivers.coop. That's reserve.drivers.coop and actually reserve your 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 trip uh, in advance. This is something that really works well for you know your average work commute, longer trips, where you where we are able to ensure that we can find make sure that there's a driver available to get you to where you need to go. And for you know the the the, the crazy you know experience of doing transit here in the city of commuting here in the city um we have been committed to really um working with our drivers working with the greater community nonprofits organizations and the like to identify more uh to more sustainable uh, measures that come out of the um the work that we're doing together to ensure that we can really change i think a lot of the different dynamics uh, that people are, are used to dealing with when it comes to their daily commute their you know getting across the city and whatnot and and avoid you know reproducing a lot of these exploitative models or systems that don't really improve or, or continue to um uh, you know leave the continuous gaps we see in transportation particularly like in the outer boroughs and the like Right. And uh, I mean, for people who might need a cab on a more sort of impromptu basis, whether, you know, a rainstorm uh, breaks out, which seems to happen a lot this summer, uh, or, you know, if, uh, leaving the bar at 1 a.m. and realize uh, they maybe want to take a cab home. Is that something you all are, 
set up for at this point, or is that maybe uh, something down the road, so to speak? So we are actually able to uh, to, f- to fulfill those, but uh, I will be I will be honest that those are still a bit uh, for our fulfillment rates on those type of impromptu trips are not quite where we want it to be. So right. um, okay, honest about that. Right. And what what kind of reaction are you, um, Ken? Are y'all getting from uh, other uh, Uber or Lyft drivers? Uh, are they wanting to get in on this too? Well, yeah. I mean, most many of the rideshare drivers in the city work for different apps, but a lot of drivers have come on, as David said, almost 3,600 drivers, and we're just starting. And driver ownership has been very important. We had at our launch, I think we RSVP'd for just over 200 drivers, almost 400 drivers and came out. And so, and I mean, and this is a very difficult thing to get because drivers are constantly, every hour counts. And we actually had had so many drivers coming. So it's the experience has been great. And as and and like I said, we're just starting and we will get better. Um for those who are not able to get trips as yet, uh please keep trying. And um, you know, and the experience will get a lot better than it is now. Thanks. Uh, right. And um uh, I understand the the co-op is looking to sell a million dollars in in shares in the co-op, where uh, the people who buy these shares, I, I guess, would also get a, a part of the profits. But the the actual decision making power for running the co-op would still remain in the hands of the of the drivers. Uh, one of you will want to say something about that and and why that would be a a good investment for somebody who cares about social justice. So uh, to kind of clear uh, that up a bit, like equity and uh, the profit itself does remain with the workers. That's one of the ways that we designed it. The way that the crowd fundraise has been working has been more off of uh, as a debt instrument. So we were asking everyone to kind of support the co-op and we're looking to pay your uh, pay back that investment uh, 2.5 times out of our revenue. Uh, that we make effectively. So for uh, so the idea is that for co-ops are, are an entity that are reliable. They don't. They are more stable than more traditional businesses. And for those of you who want to see drivers take back this industry, to see drivers transform and uh, uh, make make this a more sustainable, equitable, um, enter enter uh, you know transportation system here in New York that offers a better value for customers, for customers, better prices. And like, this is something that you can, you can invest in, you know, make 2.5 times your, your money back and also um, uh, change the lives of, uh, in, there's about a hundred thousand uh, drivers in, in, in the, across the, that serve New York city, 85,000 of them are black car drivers. So this is something that is really looking to um, make a real difference for all for all of these uh, drivers. So we hope you'll continue consider to support us on that. Great. And and before we have to go here in a moment, uh, one more time, do you want to let people uh, know about your website or any other way they yes get in touch yes. with you, whether uh, you know to get a ride in the future or, or to become an investor or whatever yes. it may be. Yes, so you can actually check us out at drivers.coop. That's drivers.coop. Over there, you can actually um, find more information on if you want to donate, if you want to invest. You could run Refunder. So I believe that's refunder.com forward slash driver co-op. Um, if you're looking to reserve your trip in advance, that's reserve.drivers.coop. Uh, and of course, you can check us out on social media on on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Drivers Co-op. One word. 
Uh, and we we hope that you guys uh, continue to be a part of this process. We've gotten this far. We've had the success that we've had because not only because drivers have come together, but because the community has embraced us. And we hope that you guys will continue to support and, uh, and allow us to transform how uh, transportation is done here in New York City. Okay. All right. David Alexis and Ken Lewis thank, from the Drivers Co-op, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. You bet. Well, that wraps it up uh, for tonight's show. Uh, we'll be preempted next week, and we'll be back in two weeks. I want to thank our uh, our board engineer, uh, Reggie Johnson, also uh, Amr Gagarian, uh, Ken Lopez, and Ellen Davidson of the Indy all uh, contributed to this show. And uh, it, as we uh, sign off here, uh, we have uh, Monkey Gone to Heaven by the Pixies. Got killed by 10 million pounds of sludge from New York and New Jersey. 